ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hey, it's Fanu Filali here from Background Briefing. Throughout the year, the team has met some remarkable people. And while we're having a break, we thought we'd bring you the stories that have touched us the most. Please meet Fahad Khan, the overachieving soon-to-be doctor from Sydney's West. He's got the smarts, he's got the marks, so why was it so hard for him to get into medical school? Reporter Marty Smiley tries to find out, and that starts with a slightly uncomfortable situation. So a catheter is basically like a plastic tube kind of thing, and you put it into the tip of the penis. I'm with Fahad Khan at Blacktown Hospital in Sydney's west. I'm going to use one gauze over here to hold the penis from the shaft, right, and then hold it upwards. It's got me feeling a little squeamish. Is the patient awake? Yeah, the patient's fully awake during this time. Oh, yeah. Luckily for me, it's just a medical simulation with a plastic mannequin. Okay, let's do that. Fahad's a 24-year-old medical student with jet black hair and a school yearbook smile. Today, he's worn his red scrubs to let me know that he takes this seriously. It's, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> One second. Okay, yeah. So now the catheter is nicely um, placed in the bladder. You know, the urine needs to come out some way, and here's one of the ways that we do it. Right. So it's all like, maybe I could do this. Yeah, maybe you could. I don't know, maybe a bit more maturity, but yeah. <laughs> okay. My name's Marty Smiley, and weirdly, this isn't the first time I've seen Fahad practice this procedure. I also made a TikTok video about this in this room, and it got 58 million views, I think. Um, and I guess a lot of people stopped scrolling when they saw that. I was one of those people, but it wasn't his visual medical demos that turned me into a follower. It was his passionate rants about his struggle to get into medicine. I'd say almost 100% of the university in Australia are guilty of being some of the most out of touch and honestly borderline performative in their sort of values that they, that they stand for. And his TikToks that call out universities for failing disadvantaged students. It was honestly like a spit in the face and that told me that you want to study medicine and to be fair, a lot of other medical schools do not give a crap about people from disadvantaged communities and really it's almost as if they're trying to save those medical school spots just for their own community of really rich and privileged people. No one believed Fahad could do it. I remember one time I went to an open day and they asked me out of curiosity, which high school do you go to? And I said, I'll go to Art Phillip High School and immediately the person's face shifted. And he said, do you even know what ATO you need to get into this course? You know, if you're not going to get it, there's no point talking to me. My peers at school would just say to me, you know, some dreams are out of reach. And that day almost made me believe that I couldn't be a doctor. You see, most of Australia's medical undergraduates come from wealthier backgrounds. They might attend prestigious schools or often benefit from tutoring and special classes. They might even come from a long line of doctors. But for Hud, well, he's the opposite. His school in Parramatta was no more for its violence than its academic excellence. There's a 100-metre race, and I was saying from 150 metres back. He grew up in public housing with a single mother who's a migrant from Pakistan, and they moved around a lot. Now Fahad lives in Mount Druitt, a suburb in Western Sydney where almost a quarter of residents live below the poverty line. And then you're expecting me to get to the finish line just as fast as the people, right? Which is totally unfair. So it's very clear there's one that's at a disadvantage. 
Despite this, he managed to get one of the best results in his school's history. But it wasn't enough. He was knocked back by his university of choice not once, not twice, but three times. And what I want to know is why. Why in Australia, someone like Fahad, who's got the drive, the smarts and the marks, can find it so hard to become a doctor? To answer that question, we first need to break bread. So we have all the burgers and all. So we have like a flavour wrap, rooster rolls, Red's burgers, bacon burger. Fahad and I are at his local Red Rooster. Did you want original for that or hot honey? Or hot honey, please. Hot honey and regular or large? Uh, I'll get the regular, please. Yeah. I'll get a rooster roll. Yeah. He reckons this place is more than just a fast food joint. It's a way of understanding Sydney's great divide. Have you heard of the Red Rooster line before? Right, so the Red Rooster line, um, it basically cuts, you know, roughly the city of Sydney um, between the suburb of Parramatta and where the airport's located. On Fahad's side of the line, there's 27 Red Roosters. On the other side to the east, there's only three. It really nicely demarcates um, eastern and western Sydney. In the east, you have cafe culture, boutique shops, beachside suburbs. Out west, there's sprawling suburbia. And the further you travel out, the more disadvantaged it gets. Some people describe it as the haves in eastern Sydney and the have-nots in western Sydney. So what they mean by that, you've got people that are more rich in eastern Sydney and people who, have, who are less you know, fortunate in western Sydney. Over the years, there's been other yardsticks, like the latte line or the quinoa curtain. They all highlight why Sydney is Australia's my most unequal city. The western side. So if you look at my suburb, Mount Drua, the median age of death is about 70 years old. And then when you look at, um, let's say, somewhere like Mossman, one of the most affluent areas in our country, right? It's a 16-year difference. It's almost like, you know, from someone from, you know, from birth up until the end of year 12. That's the kind of difference we're looking at between these two areas. For Fahad, his postcode feels like a determinant of his potential lifespan. And he's not okay with that. The people who need the most help, they get the least care, right? So that's just how it is. And not to mention the Red Roosters and all the other fast food joints around here aren't exactly helping. They call it a healthy food desert. In Western Sydney, you're twice or in some areas three times as likely to have diabetes than someone in the East. Same goes for heart disease. In the West, you're more likely to die of a heart attack. The honey satisfying the rooster Yep, Cheers. thank you. On that note, let's dig in. With the high-calorie cargo in hand, we head back to Fahad's house. Just take off your shoes here. Oh, my bad. Yeah, that's right. So once you step here, there's a bit of... So it's because there's a bit of a leak happening. This is your, your room. This is where the magic happens. <laughs> it's a typical suburban brick home, the first he's lived in that wasn't government-owned. We sit down at his kitchen table for a meal that takes him right back. Back in the day when I used to go to fast food restaurants, my trick is I'm going to get the food that has the most kilojoules per dollar spent. This is how Fahad fell in love with maths and in turn made his mum's support payments go further. So if we look at Yohan, you got the rooster roll today. Um, Yohan is about $9 um, for 2,400 kilojoules. And then my one, the Satisfryer, um, box that was 5,000 kilojoules and it's about 15 bucks, right? So your one is pretty much half the kilojoules, yeah, but not half the price. 
So mine's more bang for my buck. So oh. basically I win. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you can hear that going without is something pretty normal for Fahad. But it's also been a source of creative solutions. You know, one man's rooster roll is another man's maths equation. And he's applied that thinking to one of Western Sydney's biggest issues, doctor shortages. In Mount Druitt, every single medical specialty, for example, cardiovascular, heart doctors, eye doctors, kidney doctors, diabetes doctors, general practitioners, psychiatrists, every single doctor you can look at, and you can actually view this on a map called the District of Workplace Shortage Map. You look at that map, every single specialty is in, uh, needs more doctors. Fahad reckons the people best suited to plug the gaps are people like him. People from the area, like his family doctor. Interestingly enough, I wanted to be a doctor since I was six. Um, I always saw that mum kind of went to the GP to sometimes to speak about the different problems she might have been having. His general practitioner was a local, also from a migrant background, and really understood them. And yeah, I just saw how awesome my GP was, and ever since then, I thought I'd want to, I want to be like her. I thought I want to be one doctor for my community. The impact she had on their family was massive. She knew the prevalent issues that plagued the community and what signs to look out for. Take, for example, the thing that um, happened in my family, so domestic violence. The characterising feature of people going through domestic violence is very low self-esteem, right? So she would uh, talk about maybe certain bruises or, you know, you can see they might be looking down. And those are kind of the warning signs of someone going through potentially abuse. No one goes to a doctor one-off to a random doctor and says, by the way, this is happening to me. And so I remember my GP specifically broached that topic many times. And it was probably the, after the 15th time she broached it, that mum finally um, let her know. And that just goes to show the trust that you need to build with general practitioners. His mum's disclosure allowed their doctor to link them in with support services that changed the course of his life and broke the cycle of poverty his family was in. That's the power of a good doctor. That's who Fahad wants to be. But it turns out getting into medical school for people like him is really hard. To get into a medical degree, you need the highest high school score possible. Some universities require an Australian tertiary admission rank or ATAR that's higher than 99. Fahad remembers the day his came in. It was a hot one out west. He plugged in his laptop, logged in, and pulled up the website on his lounge room TV. So my hands started trembling. I had all sweat dripping, like beads of sweat. He'd been waiting for this moment since he was six years old when he was inspired by his family doctor. And every day for the last two years, he'd been hitting the books. I clicked on the ATA and it popped up. And if I remember correctly, it was very small font. And I looked in, it said 98.5. I was like, holy crap, that's like, that's higher than anyone I've seen in ages, like in my school. 98.55. It's an incredible score. My school was very proud. They put up a Twitter post. They, you know, put it on the, uh, on the board outside. It was like an electronic board. Like, I had got 98.55. And it was like a really big deal. And it's even more impressive when you consider what he had to put up with while studying. So in my room, um, very typically, my average temperature was sometimes 51 degrees. I had no other place to study in the house except in my room. On hot days, the West can be 10 degrees hotter than the East. And I would have, on average, six nosebleeds a day. And we thought there was some problem with me, but it's just because I was sitting in such high heat. In year 11 and 12, they moved four times and they were evicted once. I was going weeks, sometimes months of blackout, no internet. Fahad was contributing financially to the household just to keep a roof over his head. Paying for tutoring wasn't really an option. It was extremely exhausting. Every single time I had time, I was working, 
right? Then I'm studying for an additional exam, which you need a high score for. And then I was trying to provide for my family, which I need to spend a lot of time doing. So when he got his score, it was more than just a number. He'd overcome a lot of adversity, lifted himself up, and he kind of hoped that the universities would help him the rest of the way. And they did, a bit. Cue the Educational Access Scheme. It's a system designed to level the playing field between schools with ample resources, you know, the selective ones, private and grammar schools, and, well, the ones without. It also gives special consideration to people experiencing hardship. Based on where Fahad went to school and lived, he automatically received three extra, let's call them, disadvantage points towards his ATAR. For his financial issues, he got one point. But some of his hardships didn't count, like the impact family violence and separation had on him, the court proceedings he was required to attend. You're only eligible for that if it happens in year 11 or 12. There was also no consideration for him moving house multiple times, the type of housing he was in, and only having one parent at home. So from 98.55, my ATAR was increased to the maximum of 99.95. So he had the score. But an ATAR alone can't get you into medicine. You also have to sit a medical entrance exam, known as a UMAT or UCAT. These are exams that test your problem-solving skills, rather than your ability to memorise a textbook. My UMAT score was 48 percentile, nowhere near enough. At this point, Fahad could have thrown in the towel, but instead he used the score and enrolled in a neuroscience degree, then had another crack. First year of university, I did the UMAT again, 72 percentile. Closer, but not enough. Third year of applying, I got an 88 percentile in the UMAT. He finally felt ready. His university grade point average, or GPA, was strong. I have 98.55, I have disadvantages, I have an 88 UCAT, and I've got a really good GPA. So in my mind, I said that should be enough for entry. But it wasn't. His top choice, the University of New South Wales, knocked him back again. Fahad was shocked. He says he knew of two other students who'd been granted entry with lower scores. They never tell you if you're successful or not, if you got points or not, and they never tell you how the points are allocated, right? He'd applied for special consideration at the uni, but couldn't understand why it wasn't enough to get him over the line. I wrote a formal complaint and it finally came back to me. And what I found that was honestly shocking to me. This is the response he got. UNSW does not consider financial circumstances as demonstrating disadvantage. This is because most students experience some level of financial need and work to support themselves. Financial circumstances are not considered beyond a student's control once they reach university. So after year 12, any financial issues you've got going won't earn you any disadvantage points. It left him devastated. Does disadvantages disappear all of a sudden because now I'm not in school anymore? Obviously not. Anyone with like half a brain can look at the situation and say, no, these things persist. For me, it said, you're not welcome. That's the main thing it said to me. You're not invited because you don't fit the bill. After three years of failed attempts, he had one last go. This time on his UCAT, he got a 98 percentile, which scored him an interview with UNSW. At the end of it, he shook my hand and he said, I'll see you here next year. Instead, Fahad went with his local, Western Sydney University. Today, he's only a year away from graduating and in just 18 months, he'll be working in the areas that raised him. We asked UNSW whether its policies had changed since Fahad applied. 
it told us they had, and that now financial difficulties can be taken into consideration, including for entry into medicine. Did you ever want to give up? No, I didn't want to ever give up at any point. Every single time I had that failure, I wasn't thinking about myself. I was thinking about how many other families are out there like mine that are growing up with a doctor who can't help them. How many lives are going to be ruined or how many lives can be actually be changed if I actually keep uh, applying myself and actually get there? If it wasn't for his perseverance, Fahad may not have ever gotten this far. And that's a real problem because he reckons one of the reasons his area even has doctor shortages is because people like him aren't getting enough support to actually become doctors. The way he sees it is, as long as the walls of the medical schools remain high, people in lower socioeconomic areas will suffer. That's the stakes. But is he right? Hello. How you doing? I've just walked into a doctor's clinic in Campbelltown, a major suburb in southwestern Sydney. Okay, thanks. I'm here to investigate one of the things Fahad told me, that in Sydney's outer suburbs like this one, new GPs are nearly as rare as a red rooster in Sydney's east. And that's wreaking havoc in the community. Hey, Marty. Hey. And I'll be honest, I also need a checkup. Ken, thanks for seeing me. I have come in with an ailment. Um, can you see on my left eye, there's something, like, it looks like a sty to me. It's just, I woke up with it this morning. Like, it, what, what is it? Yeah, you've got a small infected mababian sister on your left lower lid, mate. That's an easy fix. So there's a little blocked duct there, which is... That sounds infected. bad. That sounds worse than a sty. Sty's colloquial. So in doctor speak, it's a mababian cyst. Um, one of the cysts in the lower lid has been blocked and now it's infected. So that's an easy fix for me. That's Dr Ken McCrory, specialist GP and director of the MacArthur General Practice. Ken's fitter than a prize-winning greyhound. He's in his 50s, but looks younger than me, and I'm 30-ish. He says that in normal circumstances, it'd take me three months to get an appointment. That's how busy his clinic is, and almost every patient has way more complicated issues than your average sty. I'm getting people in their 30s and oh, even younger, teenagers and 20s, 30s, 40s, coming with old people disorders, you know, diabetes, arthritis... Ken describes a nightmarish health situation for the region. We're an area of obesity and malnutrition at the same time. That blows my mind every day that 60% of us are overweight or obese, but they're also malnourished and aren't getting nutrition. So I see iron deficiency, B12 deficiency, phyllate deficiency, zinc deficiency, vitamin D deficiency. I have patients that haven't had a fruit or vegetable for over 20 years, and they're coming in with blood coming out of their eyes, their teeth falling out because they've got bloody scurvy in, in 2023. It's just nuts. Wait, scurvy? Isn't that a disease from a century ago? Even before that, 1400s, they figured out if they put some limes or lemons on the boats uh, and they made their sailors have some of those whilst they were away, then they didn't get scurvy. But out here in southwest Sydney, we don't eat fruit and vegetables because that's expensive. For Ken, dealing with these complex medical issues makes his work exciting and meaningful. But he says new doctors see it differently. To put it simply, they could earn more money for easier work in wealthier areas. These guys aren't dumb. And you don't do six, seven years of training and then do another three or four years of specialty training and then choose a specialty that doesn't reward you. Why would I choose to work somewhere at $40 a patient where I could go an hour down the road and work for $110 a patient 
like it's nearly three times as much for doing probably sorry guys less work because it's less complicated and you can probably get them through quicker ken can't get any of them to fill the empty rooms at his practice and the situation is getting worse According to Ken, dozens of practices in southwestern Sydney have recently closed, and the population of doctors is, well, really old. I'm one of the young GPs in the region, but I'm in my 50s, you know. Our average age is probably just under 60 at the moment. Uh, a quarter of all the GPs in some of our regions are aged over 65 because nobody wants to work here. If all my 85-year-olds and 75-year-old GPs locally decide they just can't do this any longer. We're going to get smashed with shortages. I can't see any fix coming. If anything, we see the avalanche getting worse. The deficit in GPs, not just overall, but being placed where they're needed, is enormous. And, and that's going to have grave effects on our population. I tell Ken about Fahad's experience how he struggled to get into medicine and how he thinks Western Sydney students could plug doctor shortages if they weren't starting the race 150 metres behind other students. He reckons the idea has legs. And here's the thing. He's from southwest Sydney, a born and bred Westie. Oh, I grew up about 30 minutes from here in Moorbank, so it was pretty out of southwest Sydney back in those days anyway. So I guess I haven't sort of left yet and I'm pretty happy to keep trying to help these guys. Ken doesn't just stay because he finds the work interesting. He feels a sense of duty because it's his community. That's not to say his commitment hasn't been tested. I've tried to resign a few times but people go no no well how do we replace you know you can't go. Even nursing homes I've tried to quit going to nursing homes and you get no no you can't who's going to cover these people who's going to look after these people. So you get these guilt trips as well and which is fair, like, that's okay. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll never leave, ever. Um, but I just wish I could get some people to come and join me on the journey, you know, try and get some people to stick here. Who's going to look after me when I get old? Seriously, at the moment, nobody. As well as treating patients, Ken educates doctors who finished uni and are just about ready to choose where they work. They're called GP registrars. In a stroke of luck, there are a few of them in the building today. It's my chance to test for HUD's theory in real time. Uh, my name's Soraya. I was born and raised in Cairns. I live in Clavelli, so I will probably be working there for a couple of years. And then going back to Cairns is the end goal. Yeah. Uh, would anything compel you to work in southwestern or western Sydney? Honestly, no. Well, Sydney for me is, is not home, so I want to be by the beach. I want to be, you know, around things that are happening and, and for me that's kind of the eastern suburbs at the moment. Sounds terrible, but, but yeah. I'm Kristen. I grew up in Melbourne, moved to Sydney last year, so I've got a job in Glebe, which is close to where I live in Newtown. So inner or central Sydney. And I feel like... In GP, you have, like, you have an emotional toll on patients and I think having two hours for rest a day rather than driving definitely helps. Um, so, yeah, that's what I'm doing. Oh, I'm Jacob. Um, I'm happy to continue working in Western Sydney because I actually grew up around here, so it feels comfortable to me. Um, so I'm living out here, so 
um, I'm happy to, um, you know, stick around here. That's fine. So out of three, one will likely work in Clavelli, which is less than 10Ks from Sydney CBD. One will work in Glebe, even closer. And Jacob, the only person from this area, is happy to stick it out in the West. And this isn't just anecdotal. Research shows that doctors are more likely to practice in lower socioeconomic areas if they're originally from one. Problem is, not many people who come from these areas end up becoming doctors. One Australian study found that a student of medicine or dentistry is around five times more likely to be from the most privileged suburbs rather than from the least privileged ones. That means that out of 100 students, just eight come from poor suburbs. This isn't just Fahad's theory. One medical dean at the University of Western Australia wrote a paper on this topic. He wanted to make the case to his own medical school that if you expand who gets into a medicine degree, the doctors you produce are more likely to work in places where there are often shortages. Before I leave, there is one other thing I want to know. I've been thinking of what Fahad told me about domestic violence and the role his doctor played in supporting his mother. So, besides helping to fill GP shortages, does Ken think there are any other benefits to having locals work as doctors? I just think it makes a massive difference because we're entrusted to assist and and provide advice. And and if you're going to take advice and you probably want to be comfortable with who's giving the advice, you want to have a connection sort of thing and you're more likely to take on things that may be challenging for you, whether it be activity or exercise diet or changing anything is hard. And if you can do that with someone who you connect with, it's certainly a lot easier. Fahad's not saying that every Tom, Dick and Hardy should be able to walk into a medicine degree. After all, these are people dealing with life and death situations. But he thinks the ATAR, the thing that gets high schoolers into a university course, has more to do with your whereabouts and wealth than your level of intelligence. That the playing field is far from level. And that calculating a person's economic status based on their postcode is a poor way to measure disadvantage. What if someone lives in, for example, Auburn, which is counting the bottom 25%, but the house costs $4 million. What happens then? Well, what happens then is that they're not bothered to look any deeper than the postcode you write on your application. And so they count as disadvantaged themselves. Instead, he thinks household income could be more accurate. The University Admissions Centre, the people who assess a person's disadvantage, address this by explaining that the system is automated using metrics from the census. That way, the students who may already be overburdened by their disadvantage don't have to provide the paperwork themselves. But Fahad thinks you need a PhD to even navigate the system, that it's rigid and lacks transparency. And that's what we found too. Background Briefing reached out to 13 Australian universities to determine how many underprivileged or low socioeconomic students are even accepted into medical courses each year. Many wouldn't provide the data, including UNSW, Fahad's first choice uni. What the uni did tell us was that 8% of its medical cohort are underprivileged. If you look more broadly across all degrees in universities, the current target is set for 20% by 2030. But the top eight universities have managed to reach only half of that. If these unis want to get there, they'll need to triple the number of enrolments they get from poorer suburbs. But it's not all bad news. Since Fahad's three failed attempts, some universities have started offering something new in an attempt to meet these targets. 
alternative entry pathways. They lower ATAR thresholds and have a different ranking system that doesn't pit you against schools on the opposite end of the ladder. But many still have caps. For UNSW Medicine, it maxes out at 10. And when we ask them, how many students are coming through the new pathway? They wouldn't tell us. Fahad thinks more should be done to help balance the scales for disadvantaged students. I heard this on a podcast from a doctor and he said, if someone sent the elevator down to you and and they got you up, it's your job to then send the elevator back down to help other people come up, right? Fittingly, Fahad's misquoting the iconic French singer, Edith Piaf, who grew up dirt poor and moved around a lot. Universities, you know, where did they sit in that analogy? They're just at the top of the elevator, they're sitting there, right? I think, I think that's what's going on um, at the moment. But, you know, things are changing. But I think there's still a long way to go for them to send it truly down and, you know, bring it back up in a very honest way. Welcome back, everyone. Fahad's flashing that yearbook smile. He's in his element, back in front of the camera, his favourite place outside of the operating theatre. But today, he's not making a TikTok. So we're going to be uh, covering decision-making today. Uh, Last lesson, we did our verbal reasoning. So um, this lesson, we're going from the most time-constricted subsection of the exam to now the least time-constricted. He's teaching. So basically, you know, I've been through this annoying process for so many years right and so i'm trying to make sure that other people don't have to go through the you know the same number of years as me right so the goal is get everyone or as many people as you can into medical or dental school so they don't have to worry about it ever again he's trying to speed things up a bit for the next generation the class covers everything from how to ace the medical entrance exams to what clothes to wear at interviews they have an element of his straight talking style now, if you look at these three question types, the whole, you know, there's a lot of question types in decision making, but these three make up about 68% of the entire exam. So if you can get really good at these three, you're pretty much set for the exam. I mean, if you were to guess the rest, you'll be, you know, you'll get a pretty decent mark. A good chunk of his students are from disadvantaged backgrounds, you know, the sons and daughters of single parents, houses, migrants, people from Western Sydney who one day, who knows, might end up working in the area. The reason for that is because, you know, I went through the same thing. I'd love to see those people in medicine. So you've got your own admission system. Yes, and I feel like it's better. (laughs) For Fahad, it's his way of sending the elevator back down. Background briefing sound producers are Lila Shunna and Ingrid Wagner. Sound engineering by Russell Stapleton. Fact-checking by Benjamin Sveen. Additional production by Ty King. Our supervising producer is Mario Christodoulou. The executive producer is Fanu Falali. And I'm Marty Smiley. You can subscribe to Background Briefing on the ABC Listen app. Thanks for listening.